Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hey everyone, welcome to the Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week, we are going to dig into the inner workings of some of the Democratic presidential campaigns and take a look at their finances and what it means for who we could see emerge triumphant in the Democratic primary next year. But first, we're going to dig into the big story in Washington this week. That's the continued investigation into President Donald Trump's actions regarding Ukraine. And here's what White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney had to say about it on Thursday. What you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the, into the Democratic server uh, happens as well. We, we, do, we do that all the time with foreign policy. We were holding up money at the same time for, uh, what was it, the Northern Triangle com- countries. We were holding up aid at the Northern Triangle countries so that, they, uh, so that they would change their policies on immigration. So basically Mulvaney saying that, yes, the administration did hold up military aid to Ukraine based on President Trump's desire uh, for the country to undertake a political probe something Republicans have fiercely denied before, but Mulvaney basically saying, may have happened, but there's nothing wrong with it. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives continues to dig into the backstory of what happened around President Trump's conversations with the Ukrainian president and the holdup of this military aid, what people knew and when and why. And that's what we're going to dig into this week with a couple of our top reporters. Quick note before we jump into that, we are taping this around noon on Thursday. This week, that's October 17th. So anything that happens after then, we're going to have to cover in next week's episode. For our first segment this week, we are going to uh, head up to the Capitol and check in on the latest in impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump. And here to talk about it, we have back with us uh, from a few weeks ago, Politico's Congress editor, Ben Weil. Hey, Ben. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. And Politico's foreign affairs correspondent, Nahal Tusi. Nahal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Ben, the the big story this week and kind of the backdrop to, to this episode has been this just veritable parade of Trump administration and former Trump administration officials up to Capitol Hill to testify behind closed doors uh, in the impeachment investigation into uh, President Donald Trump's conduct around uh, Ukraine and and kind of you know assorted foreign policy uh, issues. So, what, tell us what's been what's been going on up there in, in the halls of the Capitol. Yeah, it's it's been a packed week up on Capitol Hill. Um, and we didn't necessarily think it would always be like that. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, the president's uh, counsel um, sent a letter saying this is an illegitimate inquiry. We're not going to cooperate with this at all. Um, we're going to block everyone from coming. Well, what we found out was that people would come anyway. So this impeachment uh, blockade that the president had tried to erect has been crumbling quite quickly. On Monday, we had Fiona Hill. She's an ex-Russia um, expert on the National Security Council come. We had on Tuesday, George Kent, a State Department official who's an expert in Ukraine. Uh, on Wednesday, Michael McKinley, a former Pompeo uh, advisor at the State Department. On Thursday, 
um, Gordon Sondland, who has been a key figure in this Ukraine scandal. He's technically the ambassador to the European Union, but he's kind of took over Ukraine policy in the administration. And then on Friday, uh, a defense official named Laura Cooper. The bottom line is that all of these people are kind of painting a picture of um, a shadow diplomacy um, effort by Rudy Giuliani that was explicitly endorsed by President Donald Trump. And we're, we're getting nuggets every day about what is going on and um, how they were interacting and trying to essentially, you know, at the bottom line is it seems pressure the Ukrainian government for dirt on Joe Biden, you know, a political rival. Mm-hmm. Nahal, can you can you tell us a little bit more about some of these people and why why them? Why are they the ones who are being called to testify? Why are they the ones agreeing to testify? What's some of the backstory here? Well, they're a combination of political appointees and career diplomats, some now former career diplomats. And they all in some form or fashion had something to do with Ukraine and and Russia policy uh, or uh, basically, as as Gordon Sondland did, inserted themselves into it during Mm. the process. And so since the impeachment inquiry revolves around this phone call with uh, between the pre- President Trump and the President of Ukraine and his demands on Ukraine to investigate uh, Joe Biden and his son, uh, the people on the Hill are trying to basically figure out who knew what, what was really going on, uh, and where were some things happening that were inappropriate, this idea of a shadow foreign policy. And I would just, by way of uh, bios, you know, Gordon Sondland was a uh, named the ambassador to the European Union despite having zero diplomatic experience. He gave a million dollars to Trump's inauguration committee uh, and is a hotelier. Uh, and so that's basically how he got this plush ambassadorship. Uh, Fiona Hill is a very highly respected uh, Russia scholar. She had a top position at the National Securities Council, but she left the administration uh, a few months ago, actually. Uh, and um, Mike McKinley is a really interesting one because he is a career diplomat. He's been an ambassador like four times, highly, highly respected. Uh, and he resigned very recently, just last week, um, from advising Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. And he told lawmakers that that's because he was really upset with the way that career diplomats had been treated. Um, and, you know, he was unhappy with the shadow Ukraine policy as well. And uh, George Kent is another interesting one. He's still in the Foreign Service. He is a deputy assistant secretary uh, in the European Bureau. Mm-hmm. And he's also a Ukraine expert. And he used to be uh, the deputy to Marie Yovanovitch, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who Trump uh Pompeo pulled out early a few months ago, and she testified last week. So he's kind of had a long perspective on this, uh, and he probably knows uh, a lot more about the situation than most people give him credit for. But he's still in the service, and so the fact that he's testifying is really interesting. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, you know, he uh, (laughs) – I mean, he's doing so despite being ordered not to by the State Department, by the White House. Um, this is a guy who's been working his way up the ranks for years, and he's doing this at great peril to his career. Uh, he's not had an ambassadorship yet, and it's possible that after this, uh, especially if Trump stays in power, uh, that he might be sidelined um, and never get that ambassadorship. So these two, some of these people are really taking risks. Others have already stepped down, and, and it's a little different for them. And Nahal, another name wrapped up in all this is Marie Ivanovich, who's the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And uh, you and, and a couple of Ben's Congress reporters wrote a, a big story about her appearance on Capitol Hill I, last week, I guess, and and what, what she was 
talking about there, which again is just uh, speaking to this kind of like broader like shadow policy effort, uh, not not necessarily based around U.S. interests, but around some some other stuff. Correct. Uh, basically, Marie Yovanovitch was the ambassador to Ukraine, uh, who was supposed to leave the post in July. But because of mounting criticisms of her among conservative media from Rudy Giuliani and others and President Trump's own um, disdain for her, uh, she was pulled out early in May. And that was one of the first signals that something is really, really awry with U.S.-Ukraine policy. And so she testified last week uh, about how, uh, you know, she was unfairly pulled out and and what this shadow policy meant and the the real implications of the U.S. Uh, acting in what what seems to be a very corrupt manner and the kind of poor example it sets for countries like Ukraine that struggle with their own corruption problems. Uh, and so her, her testimony was a really big deal. And a lot of what's happened this week has kind of been building on that. Got it. Now, Ben, th- this testimony is all happening behind closed doors, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why is that? So this is uh, a big question, uh, and it's a political debate, too, that's that's taking place on Capitol Hill. The Democrats are saying what we're engaged in is basically a grand jury investigation. You know, we're bringing in witnesses behind closed doors. We're trying to get the facts. And when we're ready to indict, if you will, you know, when we're ready to impeach, that's when we will bring things forward. There will be public uh, testimony and, and witnesses coming on Capitol Hill in the, in the coming days and weeks, I think. But they feel like this is something they need to gather the evidence for and the facts from behind closed doors. They also don't want the witnesses to be necessarily learning from each other's statements. You know, person A says X has happened we don't want, you know, they don't want another person involved in that scheme to know what's being said. Oh, interesting. Um, Republicans have said, you know, this is crazy that you're going to impeach a president based on what's, you know, secret behind closed doors. But I think Democrats feel like they're gathering a lot of evidence and they will bring it public um, when they're ready for it. What, how, in terms of you and, and your team, of the, the, the reporters covering Congress, what, what has that meant in terms of the way you, you organize your week? I mean, there, there's still, you know, it's, you guys have <laughs> still been able to, like, get some really interesting information about what's been going on in these meetings. But yeah, it's, Ben, it's, what has that meant for the reporters? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's tough, you know. Um, a lot, this is all happening um, behind closed doors. It's closely held until it isn't, you know. Uh-huh. And and you know we're our reporters are are the best in town and they're they've got sources on the committees they're developing relationships with the lawyers for some of these people um, and so it's just a matter of trying to trying to pull out nuggets of information and like what's being said um, confirming with other sources and then when we're ready to go you know we pull the trigger on a story. What's the most interesting thing that's come out of that so far this week in as with all these people coming out? We know when we this morning we broke the news on on Gordon Sondland's formal testimony, um, and it was pretty remarkable how willing, how eager he is to break with President Trump. You know, Sondland is as as Nahal pointed out, you know, uh, a political appointee. He was a rich, you know, uh, donor to the GOP to Trump. He was kind of a late convert to Trump. He was first uh, behind Jeb Bush and then Marco Rubio, um, but he donated a million dollars to the Trump inaugural committee in a bid to, you know, try to get some position. So he was made ambassador to the EU, um, but soon found himself as Trump's point man on this Ukraine um, uh, plan, you know, to try to to try to work with Rudy Giuliani and others in the administration to work to pressure Ukraine on Biden. Um, so the fact that Sondland is breaking so, so strongly with Trump is really interesting to me. To me, it seems like he's, he knows 
where things are headed and he doesn't want to play the scapegoat. He doesn't mm. want to get um, be the, the, the bag man Interesting. holding the bag. Nahal, you know, happening amid all this, and we don't even have time to get into everything that's going on in Turkey and Syria in in the last week. But there, there's just this sense be- between the 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 ongoing revelations about Ukraine and and what you guys have called the shadow foreign policy and 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 the the actions there, and then the the chaos in in Turkey and and Syria that that the Trump foreign policy is is kind of being shaken to its core right now. Are those recent developments? Do they affect the the impeachment proceedings? in any way or is this kind of just something that's like really rattling a lot of the like the the world that's involved in in the impeachment proceedings if that makes sense sure i, I mean the serious situation with trump making this snap decision to pull us troops and let turkey invade uh it just is the type of thing that goes to prove the critics point that he is unpredictable his uh foreign policy is inconsistent it is chaotic it drives us allies absolutely crazy uh and it goes to show that you know it, if if there are allegations that there is um, impromptu things happening on Ukraine, it's quite likely that they are true when the president can do something like this on Syria, which is, uh, frankly, a, a, in, in many ways, a bigger deal given that we have U.S. troops there. Now, in terms of whether it will imp- uh, affect his impeachment inquiry, the serious stuff, um, look, right now we don't see any signs that Republicans are going to uh, support impeaching and removing Trump because of what he's doing in Syria. But they are very upset what, about what he's done in Syria. And so it doesn't help right now to make some of your jurors upset with you. Uh, and if if there are more revelations going forward that are utterly damning to the president on Ukraine, you can see Republicans thinking, you know what, at a certain point, like this is getting out of hand and we need to do something. Because national security is still one of those things where Republicans are willing to break with Trump now and then. And Ben, of course, amidst all this, another big thing happening in Congress today, uh, the, the passing of, of Congressman Elijah Cummings, who has been the chairman of the House Oversight Committee and, and one of the key figures involved in investigating President Trump and the Trump administration, um, that, that, that just happened overnight. And so I think, I mean, it sounds like Democrats are still figuring out how to, how to cope with that and, and how, how that's going to affect the, the big plans of, of moving forward in, with this investigation of Trump. Yeah, you know, it's it's quite sad. Um, Chairman Cummings had been kind of had, had health problems for the last year or so, had spent some time in the hospital. Um, but this is still kind of a shock for Capitol Hill. Um, and for Democrats, you know, they lose one of their most talented communicators. He was really uh, an impressive orator and um, strategist and someone who I think uh, Speaker Pelosi really relied on and someone who the caucus relied on as, to be a leader in this impeachment effort. Um, Democrats still need are still figuring out now who to replace him as chairman of the oversight committee and how this will affect the impeachment inquiry. I do think they want to move rapidly fo- uh, ahead, though. Got it. All right. So ra- wrapping up here, Ben, what's your sense of what we learned this week from from all of this news, from all this testimony? Uh, you know, kind of putting a bow on things at the end of the week, like and and moving into the next one where there's going to be yet more of this testimony. What's the biggest thing you learned? You know, my biggest takeaway is that things are moving quite quickly. And uh, Democrats are aggressive in their impeachment inquiry. And 
At this point, we another bit of news we broke yesterday. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is talking to his Republican senators and saying, like, here's how an actual impeachment trial is going to work out. You know, they're gaming this out already. Uh, McConnell said maybe they'll the House will impeach the president by Thanksgiving and we'll try to hold our trial and presumably um, I would I, I presume acquit him at the moment uh, by the end of the year. Wow. So so things are moving fast. Wow, that yeah. is fast. Yeah. All right. Nahal, what what about you? What, what what's your big takeaway from the week? Uh, I'm really fascinated by how uh, people within the bureaucracy are willing to stand up to Trump, defy him. Some of these people's careers are on the line, uh, and I think it goes to show that you know he's not invincible, uh, and that even people who work for him. Uh, are willing to defy him when they need to. And I think if you continue to see more of that, uh, you know, that could lead to have having a, a political impact as well on mm. lawmakers when they see these civil servants, foreign service officers coming to the Hill and, you know, laying it all out there like that. That's really interesting. Now, obviously, the information they bring could have an impact, too. I mean, in some ways, that's the story of the Nixon impeachment is, is the, the slow breakdown of the kind of protective walls of, of people around him. All I have to say to that is, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. <laughs> well, we were promised tapes at one point by Trump himself, and then it turned out there weren't tapes. But that's that's a whole other story. Nahal, thank you so much for joining us to talk through this one. Thanks for having me. And thank you for coming in as well, Ben. Of course. Thanks. Okay, for our second segment this week, we're going to go from the halls of Congress to the campaign trail. And specifically, we're going to be talking about campaign finance. Here to walk us through it, Politico's campaign finance expert, Maggie Severns. Maggie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. And Zach Montalaro, author of the Morning Score newsletter. Hi, Zach. Hey, Scott. What's up? Campaign finance is what's up. <laughs> it's the most wonderful day of the year. All right, so let's let's jump right into what we saw on uh, Tuesday night as all these reports were coming in uh, as as uh, the rest of the political world was watching the debate we were hunkered down with these uh, Excel spreadsheets and, and everything like trying to figure out what was going on inside these campaigns and Maggie the big story it seems to be there's been this massive consolidation of resources in uh, the front runner uh, among the front runners or at least some of them yeah. So first of all, I'd like to say that there's a big story here and it's hard when there's a debate going on and we're impeaching the president <laughs> and we're all like, no, there's a big story here, which is that there are a few there are totally winners and losers at this point when it comes to money in the race. There are a few candidates who have banked huge sums in their campaign war chests heading into Iowa and heading into the early states, and they're going to be able to hire big staff and run ads and really make it in Iowa and really, you know, make it through these until Super Tuesday, at least experts say. And who, um, who are those And, three and those people are basically Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and then I'll throw in Tom Steyer, who is pouring his own money into this. You know, he doesn't really have cash on hand, but he's going to write himself a bunch of checks. Being so, a billionaire and all that. Yeah, be, it's great being a billionaire in this race. Um, and then you have a sea of other candidates who have not done that, who, you know, going all the way down to someone like Joe Sestak, who got in the race this summer and has banked, you know, way, way less than a million dollars and isn't going to be doing any of the things that I just mentioned. Well, and so you've got you, the three you just mentioned. You've got uh, Sanders, who's kind of leading the way with $34 million in his bank account. And then Warren's a bit behind him. Judge is a bit behind her. Between the three of them, they have about $83 million collectively. And that's like... It's a lot of money. Yeah, and and the rest of the field combined has maybe half that, right? And 
and you you talked about the practical effects, Maggie, of uh, just the staffing, the uh, you know all all the campaign activity, and then we haven't even gotten Zach to to the most expensive part of the campaign yet, the advertising, which is coming up, and and already most of these candidates, besides those three I mentioned are spending money faster than they're raising it without even getting to the most expensive part of the race. Yeah, so Maggie and I had the discussion that night on filing night is there's two big numbers to look at. It's the burn rate, which is how much are you spending that you how much what percentage of what you're spending is how much you raised and then how much you have in the bank. A lot of candidates, I think it's close to uh, three quarters or two thirds of them spent more than they raised this quarter. But beyond that, you want to look at how much they have in the bank, like Maggie mentioned. You know, someone like Sanders, someone like Warren, someone like Buttigieg has a lot in the bank. Then you look at someone like Joe Biden, who both spent more than he raised Indeed. and doesn't have that much money in the bank. He has about a little over $9 million sitting in his bank account. That's more than some candidates. It's more than someone like Julian Castro, who has basically nothing in the bank at the end of last quarter. Super dangerous for him. But is $9 million in the bank enough to be able to pay long term for advertising, for bumping up your field staff, for things like that? It's absolutely it's absolutely more than all those candidates you mentioned. But it's like so much less than the other folks Biden is competing with in, in that kind of front runner top tier class. It was kind of astonishing. I mean, he's closer to Castro than he is to any of those three that yeah. we mentioned. And, you know, I think the thing that I would watch with Biden is, you know, $9 million, if you're in a state like Iowa, that's going to buy you TV advertising. That's going to, you know, get you somewhere. And money isn't everything in a race. You know, people are really excited for your candidacy. It isn't everything you need. Donald Trump is a good example of that. He, you know, was outraised by Hillary Clinton and he still became president. But after we get through these early states like Iowa and New Hampshire, we're going into Super Tuesday. We're going into California, which is a really expensive state to buy ads. We're going into this huge, you know, swath of states where candidates are just going to need a pile of money if they want to make a national name for themselves and be competing. And that's where someone like Biden is going to run into trouble if he's not bringing in, you know, money as this kind of necessary condition if you want to be competing with the big guys. So he's going to need to really step up the rate at which he's bringing in dollars. And a concern for him is that a ton of his checks, I think it was about a third of the money he raised, came from people who were cutting Biden the maximum $2,800 check in the race. So those are donors that he can't go back to. Those are people that he can't revisit and say, hey, can you write me another check in the primary that I, I can now spend? So he needs to be finding new donors in his pool. Someone like Bernie Sanders is not doing that. A lot of his donors he can revisit. And a lot of his donors, actually, he's increasingly tapping people who are writing monthly checks to him. So he has this kind of recurring Or hit, hitting a button. The checkbook probably never <laughs> even figures it <laughs> out. The, the, the theoretical check right. um, where people are actually monthly subscribing to Bernie. And that's, you know, a recurring well for him um, that's going to keep, keep flooding into his campaign over the course of this primary season. Yeah, Maggie, I thought you made a point that was very wise as we were like, – digesting all of this the other day is that if, you know, we were looking at Biden uh, kind of in the red for the last quarter, right, his cash is spending more than he raised, his cash on hand dipping uh, into into eight figures. And we were looking at, well, what's he spending money on? We, there's, there's a lot of staff payments, obviously. But you pointed out he's not really spending much more than or less than anyone else kind of in this top tier bracket of the campaign. The problem is on the other side of the ledger. So he's not raising enough money to keep up with it the way that Sanders and Warren and, and Buttigieg are. Yeah, he spends like a normal top tier candidate, which is what he is. You know, he's spending like one of the big guys because um, we were looking at kind of what is going on over here. Why doesn't he have more money? Um, you know, he's doing ads. He's doing marketing. The problem is that he's not 
raising like one of the big people. And specifically, he's not raising like one of the big people among small dollar donors. And that's something that we've really dug into is that um, Warren and Sanders have done this really specific strategy where they do not do big money fundraisers. And they are really leaning into the small dollar community to fund their campaigns and kind of, you know, eschewing all all big money donors. Buttigieg has managed to raise money from a combination of the two. So he is hitting the road. He is, you know, really working this big money crowd, doing a lot of in-person fundraisers. But he also has managed to build a small dollar base. And he raises a good share of his money from small dollar donors. Biden doesn't really have that. Um, He, you know, has not built himself a base of small dollar donors that are kind of kicking in his campaign. And that is just, you know, leaving him with around $15 million in fundraising as opposed to 2025, you know, this these larger numbers that other folks are bringing in. Yeah, the the Obviously, we, we talked about this over and over again in 2018 and how online fundraising changed the, the, the face of the midterms and, and poured so much money into Democratic campaigns. And there was, I think, Zach, this thought heading into to 2019 that um, this wasn't going to be as available uh, or as important in a, in a primary setting. And it's, that's certainly been true for a number of candidates, but a, a handful have really made it, it work for them. And that seems to be... It's basically the people who have been able to turn on that spigot versus who who haven't. That seems to be the dividing line financially in the primary. Yeah, you know, and just one candidate. There's some candidates who just really rely on the small dollar donors, and everyone was worried that this would dry up after 2018 with all the House candidates running. There's a you know a lot of House seats Democrats need to defend. It's not drawing up down ballot, and it's not drawing up for some of these top tier candidates. And some candidates have made themselves totally viable based off small dollar donors alone. Thinking both Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang raised $10 million or just under $10 million. That's about what Kamala Harris brought in. So, you know, about $2 million less. That's pretty uh, impressive. That's small dollar donors only. From a businessman from upstate New York as opposed to the like thrice statewide elected famous politician from California. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. We throw around these numbers. It's so hard to put context around them. But so I, w- I went back and looked at the 2008 Democratic primary, um, the, the election, that uh, Barack Obama's first presidential election. And you know, going into this point in the calendar year in, in 2007, um, Obama had about the same amount of, of cash in the bank as Bernie Sanders uh, did now. Hillary Clinton had even more. But but that's that's kind of where Obama was. Where Biden is now is below where John Edwards was in 2007. And so we're talking about kind of the underdog candidate who was running third. This is a former vice president of the United States who is is I mean, I think that illustrates the degree to which this is an unusual, uh, potentially troubling situation for someone of front runner status like Biden uh, to, to be in when when with that comparison back to Edwards. And again, like we talked about, we are heading into the part of the campaign that's more expensive than what we've been into so far. Yeah, the reason why cash on hand is so important and why you need to look past just what they're spending and what they're taking in is because it's going to get a lot more expensive going forward in a couple of months. When we get closer and closer to Iowa, you have to start spending on television ads, on digital ads. You have to really ramp up your field staff and then immediately following that is the three other early states and a pretty early Super Tuesday. We're coming to a point that there's going to be so much money spent in so many different places. You need to have money in the bank now. Yeah. And Elizabeth Warren has already announced, you know, with all her money that she's raised as one of the leaders in the pack, she's announced that she's going to do her first ad buy, which is going to be $10 million in the early states. So that shows how people are banking money can start making these big investments now. Yeah, $10 million is going to be more than, than some people are able to spend in total. 
Zach, what else stuck out to you as you were digging through all these numbers? And I know you're continuing to dig through through some of them looking for, for interesting tidbits. But what, what has really struck you uh, besides what we just talked about as you have been exploring these filings? Well, it's also kind of interesting to see the candidates who dropped out at the end of the quarter or, or rather the beginning of the quarter. You know, they've been out of this race for a long time and we, you know, we didn't really have a perfect idea on why that was the case. Looking at their filings, that's probably – we have a better idea. They, some, they dropped out because they ran out of money. They dropped out because they saying. ran out of money. Um, <laughs> you know, some of them didn't make the debate stage. But all these candidates who dropped out were really just burning through money that they were just spending so much, so much more than they took in. Look at somebody like, you know, um, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, for example. She spent – million more than she raised. And the only way she could have done that in the first place was she had a very deep account from past Senate runs that she could transfer forward. But even with that, she couldn't – she just couldn't raise what she needed to to have a campaign of her size. Someone like – someone like Michael Bennett who's still in the race is spending more than he's taking in. Someone like Jay Inslee didn't raise that much money despite, you know, being a single issue climate focused candidate, spent more than he took in. And so when and these You can- mentioned Julian Castro before and dipping under a million dollars left in the bank. That could be yeah. I mean the, the, this this uh, yeah. factor is coming for people. Yeah. yeah. Money is not everything in politics, but you you can't have a viable campaign if you can't pay your staff. You can't have a viable campaign if at some point you can't advertise in Iowa and start preparing for Super Tuesday. And that just was really exemplified this quarter. Well, and I think the important thing to note is that uh, with all these candidates, the money is really showing whether or not people have enthusiasm for you. You know, it's – That's the other side of this online. It's just an easy grassroots thermometer. Yeah, it's a total grassroots thermometer. You know, it shows if the real base of the Democratic Party is interested in your candidacy or not, and it can go in your favor. It cannot. You know, no one shows that more than Beto O'Rourke, who when he launched his campaign, people were excited to see him again. They were excited to see him back in the race, and he had a quick boom in fundraising. But as his candidacy has kind of failed to take hold, he's not raising a lot of money, you know, and these other folks are trying to kind of catch hold with the grassroots. And I think to to a certain extent, the large dollar donor base can kind of follow that too. You know, there are some people they like, they like Joe Biden, they've known him for a while, they like Harris. But with these smaller candidates, you know, there's a little loyalty there. But if you aren't exciting the grassroots base, they the large dollar donors aren't really going to go to you either. Mm. Maggie, what else? Uh, any Any other kind of big takeaways you took away from uh, from these reports? You know, I think that this is going to be possibly, and we've kind of hinted at this, but it's we're going to have to see which candidates take the hint and decide to get out um, mm-hmm. and, who, and who decides they want to hang in there and try. You know, the DNC has tried to whittle the field by making the debate qualifications harder and harder. Um, the fundraising element, you know, I talk to donors all the time who are willing to kind of chip in a little more to keep their fav- favorite person in the race a little bit longer. But the fact is that some of these candidates, they're just not raising enough to really make a splash in in any of these early states, you know. And I think that these numbers show for some of these people, you know, someone like a Michael Bennett, someone like a Seth Moulton, you know, some of these guys have dropped out. But who – who is still hanging on, who's going to just see their results and get out of this race. Got it. Maggie, thank you so much for for joining to walk us through all that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Zach, thank you as well. Thank you, Scott. And as usual, a big thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Our producer this week is Annie Reese. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks so much for listening. 
We'll talk to you next week.